We've all been in a class where there's one or two kids that never seem to listen to the teacher. When I was younger, I remember being annoyed at such kids because I didn't understand why they couldn't just listen to the teacher and prevent conflict from having to happen. Most people view these children as bad or troublemakers. However, on this episode of Trauma Runs the World, we will see why there's so much more to the story of these disruptive children, quote-unquote, and why our current approach to education is hurting the kids that need the support of educators the most. It all starts with where children come from before they enter the classroom. Most children receive proper care and endless support from their parents that want to see their children take on the world to the best of their ability. However, for some, they're born into circumstances where neglect and violence are all too common, and they have to grow up quickly just to survive. Psychologists have referred to this, in a medical sense, as adverse childhood experiences, which include physical abuse, neglect, emotional abuse, parent incarceration, and other family-related traumas that affect their behaviors and their performance in the classroom. But specifically, let's discuss how these behaviors impact their ability to handle stressors in the classroom environment. Within classes, some behaviors that are often associated with traumatic stress symptoms are problems with attention, memory, executive functioning, which is just regulation, emotional self-regulation, and relationship formation. All of these skills are clearly very important for a child to properly function in a classroom setting and to perform well. For traumatized children, All of these skills are very hard to carry out because of something called the window of tolerance. So for some background, there is a window of tolerance for everyone, and it is basically a window in which we can tolerate certain stressors and maintain composure. For people who grew up in a healthy environment and have healthy attachments, healthy communication abilities, this window is very large, which means it takes a very high level of stress to send that person over the edge and into a screaming fit or a tantrum. For children, they haven't developed all of the skills that would allow them to have a large window, so they have a small window of tolerance. But then when we look at traumatized children, this window is even smaller. There's two ways for traumatized children that we can tell they've gone out of their window of tolerance. The first way is hyperarousal, which is the most obvious one because they will be extremely disruptive, very active, and uh, chaotic. The second way is hypoarousal, where they sit down and they're unwilling to participate in their activities, do their work, and they just shut down. These two behaviors seem to people that they're coming from a place of defiance or a place of trying to anger the adult, but really what's happening is that these kids don't feel safe. This is because children with severe trauma are hypervigilant, which means they're always looking around themselves for danger, as they have been betrayed by their circumstances before. The strict structure in school, and then the maybe unpleasant interactions they could have with other students, can quickly push them out of, out of feeling safe, and this can result in, in them going out of their window of tolerance, acting out, or shutting down. And to put this in a real-life context, From the fall 2015 front page story in New York Times, we see the structure of school having kids in this sort of situation. They reported that a kindergarten teacher in Brooklyn faced um, a lot of hard times in dealing with a difficult new student. 
From the time the six-year-old girl started kindergarten, she struggled to adjust to strict rules. She racked up detentions for not knowing directions or not keeping her hands neatly folded in her lap. Sometimes, after being chastised, she threw tantrums. She was repeatedly suspended for screaming, throwing pencils, running away from school staff members, or refusing to go to another classroom for a time out. Now, although these rules seem a little crazy, I know they do to me, I didn't really have rules like this in my schools. The point is that this six-year-old girl was different from the other students. She wasn't able to adjust to these strict rules and uh, abide in the rules that the teacher set like the other students did. And the response from the school was to punish her instead of looking deeper at what the real issue was. So this story caught the attention of experts and they analyzed this and came to the conclusion that she was not committing willful misbehavior or doing this on purpose. She was acting out of emotional impulses and they did this by taking her background into consideration. The girl was a child to a single mother living in a poor area of Brooklyn, New York. Statistically, this is where children are most likely to develop disruptive behaviors because poverty and not having both parents in the home oftentimes leads to the adverse traumatic experiences we talked about earlier. Additionally, when we look at the neuroscience aspect of this, not just the psychological, but when we look at the neuroscience aspect of it, psychologists measure school readiness by measuring how well the child has been able to develop executive function before kindergarten. Well, you might ask, what is executive function? Executive, well, it is made up of three components. The first is inhibitory control, which is the capacity to control strong emotions or impulsive behaviors. The second part is cognitive flexibility, where a person is able to think about multiple things at the same time and easily switch between different concepts. The last component of executive functioning is the working memory, which is what it sounds like in its ability to process and hold new information. This executive functioning components all work together to enable children to make conscious directions in behavior. It is also through this system in the brain that children are able to keep attention in the class and tolerate stressors such as frustrations with peers and teachers. This is what's normally supposed to occur, this development of the executive functioning part of the brain. But what is happening in the brain of kids like the six-year-old I mentioned from New York Times is different. In her case, she doesn't have the level of conscience control expected at her age. But in order to understand why she hasn't been able to gain the same development, we will need to understand how the brain works at a deeper level. The first aspect of the brain we need to understand is memory. There are two pathways of memory. The first one is in the prefrontal cortex, where various kinds of memory are stored. For example, when we memorized the multiplication tables back in third grade and were asked, what's 7 times 8? We respond 56, not because of a mathematical calculation that we're doing in our heads, but by retrieving it from the prefrontal cortex. It's an immediate memory. It's an immediate response. Our capacity of storing information in our prefrontal cortex is determined largely by how well our hippocampus works. Then there's a secondary form of memory. The secondary form of memory is where emotional memories are stored. A lot of these memories come from early childhood where they can be positive. For example, a memory of warmth and security we stored from experiencing 
a supportive parent or the care of a parent. Then there are negative emotional memories that comes from experiences with fear or anger as a result of being threatened or maybe experiencing punishment. These memories are pushed through the amygdala to a different part of the frontal cortex, which is called the orbital frontal cortex. The memories are different because they aren't retrieved consciously. So to recap, memories like multiplication tables are in the prefrontal cortex and emotional memories are in the orbital frontal cortex. So the importance of understanding these two pathways is because the orbital frontal cortex, where the emotional memories are stored, is at the core of how trauma creates adverse behaviors in children. For instance, if a child has an early experience with intense anger and that is stored as a negative emotional memory, when the child experiences stimuli later in their life that creates anger, regulating that anger response may not be consciously possible if they haven't developed enough of the executive functioning that is appropriate for their age. So to put this easier to understand, with PTSD, what happens is that distorted emotional memory created from an extremely powerful and impactful incident creates disruption in every part of the person's emotional regulation. And research study describes a case of PTSD in a second grade student who previously got along very well with his friends and was succeeding in school, but who after witnessing his mother being hit in the arm by a stray bullet while they were walking together in their neighborhood, became very defiant with teachers, often hiding under desks, knocking things down, hitting other children, and running out of the classroom. So in this case, it seems as if his uh, memory or emotional memory was coming from fear. So we see this fear coming back, right, in his interactions with teachers if there's kind of a conflict there he might be afraid um hitting other children running out of the classroom whenever he feels that fear again it's almost as if his behaviors are not consciously done because we know that when he was consciously making those behaviors he was a great kid but it was after this experience where he wasn't able to emotionally regulate himself now this is an extreme case But the most common case or issue with the orbital frontal cortex and emotional memories results from toxic stress. So toxic stress is a consistent and intent activation of the stress management system of the brain, which is resulting from stressful events or traumatic events like we talked about before, like neglect, abuse, some sort of violence they're witnessing. But these things happen suddenly and or have to be endured by the children without the support of caring adults that are walking them through it, or it can be very consistent. This is so impactful that the brain can change its entire structure if this happens early enough in the child's life. So studies have reported that chronic toxic stress is associated with hypertrophy and overactivity in the amygdala and orbital frontal cortex. And whereas comparable levels of adversity can lead to a loss of neurons and neural connections in the hippocampus and medial prefrontal cortex. So this is basically saying that in the brain, literal cells are lost because of toxic stress in the key areas of emotional regulation. So to break down the consequences of this by the parts that this study talked about. So when our amygdala is hyperactivated, as this study says, this means more anxiety. Combine that with the 
prefrontal cortex that is damaged, which means that the person has less control of their emotions. Then it also talks about hippocampus reduction, which means impaired memory, making it harder to learn and regulate a person's mood. Furthermore, another study in 2013 showed 145 children from ages 3 through age 6 assessing their emotional behavioral development and examining data on their family circumstances. After the children were 6 years old, the authors administered an MRI brain scan to each child, measuring the size of their hippocampus, prefrontal cortex, and having the axonal nerve connections between them. Preliminary analysis found that children had fewer connections with the PFC, or prefrontal cortex, and on further analysis, the authors determined that it wasn't poverty itself that was associated with a less functional hippocampus. Rather, it was the presence of a hostile parenting style, low levels of emotional support from parents, and repeated exposure to stressful life events. This shows us again another example that shows us how trauma and toxic stress, chronic stress, on children literally changes the ability of their brain to develop. And it specifically affects the parts that work with emotional regulation, making it harder for them to make conscious behaviors. Additionally, trauma also affects the relationships children can form in school, not just their behavior. So traumatized children struggle to feel safe, as I talked about before, but that means that it's harder for them to build relationships, which could lead to a lack of engagement in the school setting. Children that are in this situation are distressful and suspicious of others, leading them to question the reliability of the relationships with classmates, teachers, etc. And research indicates that those that are traumatized at a young age have a hard time reading social cues and could therefore either seem socially withdrawn or they could unintentionally bully their peers, resulting in them being hated by their peers. For example, when compared to their classmates, children who've been physically abused haven't been have been found to engage in less intimate peer relationships and tend to be more aggressive and negative in their peer interactions. Children can also have issues with authority figures um, because the authority figures they first know, which is their parents, might have failed to provide safety for them in the past. And therefore, they project that distrust they have of authority figures onto their teachers, which makes it hard for them to develop connections and feel safe around them. We can tie all of this back to the six-year-old girl in the New York Times article. She had disruptive behaviors, but we can see that these resulted from circumstances beyond her control. She started behind everybody else in in terms of her ability to control her emotions and be in a school environment because she wasn't given a healthy environment that she needed to thrive from the beginning. Now, everybody would expect that the education system would take these studies and understanding about how the brain works for different kids and give them the support they need so that they can have equal opportunity. That's not the case. In fact, school makes it worse, ultimately making these kids lose hope and lose investment in their education. In the case of the six-year-old girl, the teacher would continue to give her detentions and eventually place the girl's name on the school's got-to-go list. So the child was essentially punished for something that she doesn't have control over. If we follow this child as she moves to another school, the, the same process is likely to repeat. All while she's missing years of crucial education, she's behind in math, reading probably, and by the time elementary school is over, she hasn't gotten 
the help she needs to successfully go into the next step of education. And she probably has developed this false sense of herself that she's incapable of learning because all she's been told is that she's disruptive, she's bad, and children tend to become what they've been told they are. And then furthermore, the conditions at home probably haven't changed, so her trauma is just compounding and worsening. Then entering middle school, then later on high school, this girl is just going to continue on this path. It's going to be very difficult for her to get grades that are going to get her into college. And she's not going to have the self-esteem and confidence to think that she's smart enough to achieve something for her own. Then we have to think about what this child is surrounded by. If she's in a poverty-ridden community, there's most likely a lot of crime, a lot of drugs, um, bad relationships, a lot of other dropouts that are in the same situation as her. She's probably going to go on that path instead of investing in her education because she doesn't believe that she can make it. And then the cycle starts of being uh, a single mom or being stuck on welfare and more than likely she will live her life thinking that she wasn't capable and that she couldn't have a bright future now i understand these are all assumptions but if we just look at the consequences of children being degraded in schools like this from such an early age based on behaviors that come from trauma it's not really hard to string these things together because a person that was treated as a bad kid is not suddenly going to act good when they couldn't control it in the first place and this is not just a story of one person it's a story of millions that drop out of school that get involved in bad things crime drugs those kids don't do it because they believe they have hope those kids do it because they believe they don't have anything else left and then we also have to understand there's another component to this why does certain trauma affect some kids more than others A study found out that suspensions and high uh, adverse childhood experiences increase the likelihood of dropout by age 18 and regress by age 18, regardless of race. However, it says that they found an interaction for black youth only when they looked at the high adverse childhood experiences and suspension. For black youth, this had a compounding effect on dropout and this meant that the impact of ACEs and suspension by age 12 was particularly damaging for black youth as it related to dropout. So essentially, black youth, when, they, when you combine the high level of trauma and being suspended at school, it makes them way more likely to drop out than when compared to white youth that experience high ACEs and also suspension the reason is because we have to notice this disparity for black youth extends beyond just suspensions and adverse childhood experiences we have to understand the environment in which black youth often grow up in over time over the history of specifically america the segregation of minority neighborhoods has resulted in pockets of america where crime poverty and violence is rampant kids see drive-by shootings seeing their friends die in front of them seeing their family die in front of them. Additionally, as a result of high poverty in these areas, um, crime is common, incarceration is common, therefore fathers are often not in the home. So the child is already witnessing family breakdown as the single parenthood rate is 50% in the black community. Charges of domestic abuse is also common, which is another aspect of a family breakdown. The single parent having multiple partners also makes it very difficult for that child to find stability 
high incarceration rates also means that children are witnessing their parents lead their life in an age where they probably don't even understand the concept of jail. All of these things is to illustrate that black youth in America have complex trauma histories, which means that these kids suffer layers of traumatic events where physical, emotional, family trauma, sexual abuse, witnessing community breakdown, violence, all of these things, these layers compound and create issues that are deeper and harder to treat, which is why I believe that the adverse childhood experiences, when you combine that with suspension, just have a way harsher impact in terms of dropout rates for black youth as compared to white youth. A real life example comes from the National Childhood Traumatic Stress Network that really puts this into perspective. Now, this is the story of a real person, but this represents so many black youth that also experience the same life and have the same outcomes. It reads, Mario is 11 years old. He struggles with frequent nightmares and depressive symptoms. He also has difficulty following rules and paying attention at school, which regularly leads to detentions and suspensions. During an assessment, clinicians discovered that Mario and two other family members have been victims of shootings. One of the victims, an older cousin, died from his wounds. Mario was shot in the leg while standing on the sidewalk near a group of young men who were targeted by a shooter on a bicycle. He was 10 years old at this time. He now lives with his mother and three siblings and has only sporadic contact with his father. There are many episodes of domestic violence between his father and mother. Before they were separated, Mario witnessed these events when he was six and seven. Mario is just one child, but many share the stories in the communities where crime and poverty are high. And unfortunately, schools reinforce the reasons such communities are disadvantaged to begin with. This leads to the next chapter of this episode, the current response from schools and why it's doing more harm than good. With the way that schools treat these kids, we know that the symptoms of trauma can be misdiagnosed as just childish tendencies. But the other end of the spectrum, the more harmful side of the spectrum, is when these symptoms can be treated as ADHD or oppositional defiant disorder, a resistant pattern of anger, defiance of authoritative figures, and being treated as a form of being vindictive against the teachers and authority figures in the school. Now, the result of this is that Many schools have implemented zero-tolerance disciplinary policies, which are basically where students are suspended or expelled for very minor infractions. Now, the problem with this is that not only is this just unrealistic for children who are just learning how to function in the world, even healthy children, right? But it's also really bad because it's disproportionately applied to students of color. If a white kid and a black kid do the same thing, the person that's most likely to receive that infraction is the black kid. And I saw this specifically within my school. I remember in middle school, uh, we had a zero tolerance policy. So there was so many black kids that would get into fights and then they would get, you know, uh, suspended. Not expelled usually, but just suspended. But I was like, yeah, that's right. That makes sense. That's bad. Like, you shouldn't get into fights, right? Then there was this one time where this white kid brought alcohol to school. He literally brought an entire water bottle of vodka to school and he talked about it to everyone. So the teachers heard people gossiping about this kid. Once the teachers found out, they 
you know, caught him in one of the classes and they asked to see his water bottle. They realized it was alcohol. He got into trouble. Right. And we were like, oh, my gosh, we're just going to see like he might just get expelled. I mean, he was at this point in, in eighth grade. What happened was that this was the day before winter break. What happened was that we didn't see the result because, of course, we went on winter break. When we came back, he didn't even get lunch detention, let alone suspension let alone expulsion, nothing, except probably they went and talked to him in the office and his parents probably came and said, oh, he's young, you know, he made a mistake. I mean, he could have been arrested for that. He was, what, 14 at that time. But that just shows you how there's just such a disproportionate way that these zero tolerance policies are applied. There's no reason why kids that are just fighting or even sometimes even tackling each other should be suspended and cut from their education while a kid that brings substances to school should not even be given lunch detention. Bottom line is is that these young people that are suspended, uh, young people of color, are often unsupervised and without productive activities when they're taken out of school. They fall behind on their coursework and it makes dropping out way more appealing when you don't know what's going on in school. And then if you're out of school and you don't really see yourself having a job, going to college, the only really other way to make a living is through crime because poverty leads to crime. And this makes these kids more likely for arrest, more likely for imprisonment. And not even just that, even within schools, teachers and administrators are relying on police. So the arrest can even happen while these kids are in school. They don't even need to be out on the streets actually doing crimes. So all of these things show us that the way schools are handling it, they're making these kids more likely to ruin their lives, to push themselves into even more traumatic experiences. And pushing these kids into the streets with no skills makes it even more likely they'll continue the cycle that made them traumatized in the first place, which is their parents not being stable, their community not being stable, and crime-ridden. So they become part of the problem, and they repeat that for the next generation. And we can see that today because in the United States of America, one out of every nine black child and one out of every 28 Hispanic child has one an incarcerated parent. In comparison, one in 57 white children or fewer than 2% have had a parent incarcerated. It is not hard to understand why this is. We have all the other inequalities, but now we see with education, kids are starting off way behind everyone else in terms of their ability to function within school. They're being thrown out of school at a higher rate. What is their options? Their options is to move into a life of crime that they see all around them. And they're probably going to end up in jail. And when they have a kid, they're going to be that incarcerated parent. So basically, this vicious cycle repeats. So I want to end this episode off with some positive things that have happened. There are few schools that have realized this and have tried to make an actual impact on their kids and to make a positive change. I want to highlight these schools because I feel that understanding that this can happen, this change can be happening, is the first step to, you know, making a change within our education system. So the first example is from Brookston, Massachusetts. The Brookston School District started educating their staff about trauma. And with this knowledge, teachers were able to create a more supportive, more safe environment where relationships, community building were prioritized. 
And at the end of the two years, their disciplinary referrals were down by 75%. This is all they had to do. All they did was just educate themselves about trauma and then just implement that and try to make kids feel more comfortable around their peers, around their teachers, and provided a sense of community to these children. And when that happened, these behaviors went down. So that shows us that there's still hope to mold them, not as their trauma defines them, but as who they can be in their true potential. And then another example is in San Francisco, California, and it's from the El Dorado Elementary School. So the K-5 high-needs elementary school housed mostly minority students. They were regularly exposed to violence in their neighborhoods and other traumatic events. And with grant funding, the school incorporated trauma-informed practices. So the teachers were educated on how trauma affects kids. And the teachers were also given opportunities to focus on their own wellness, right? Because it requires a lot of patience to deal with kids that are traumatized and to help them. And students were also taught how to cope with stress, how to calm themselves. Additionally, each classroom created a safe space where children could go to calm down and take a break. Instead of a time out where it's a punishment, they're given a space to come back into that window of tolerance where they can take on the stressors around them. The school's efforts resulted in a 74% decrease in disciplinary referrals and an 89% decrease in suspensions. This is almost all of the kids. All of the kids that were getting suspended, getting disciplinary referrals, have now been able to focus and learn in their schools. This is really my purpose in with this episode, is to highlight this big issue and to eventually under people understand that the inequalities that we see, the poverty, the high incarceration rates in America, it all comes down to the fact that there is not equal opportunity from the beginning. And one aspect of this is how mental health is not really treated for the poor and minority community. The only way we can really address this is it has to come from the government. Politicians promise us to help disadvantaged communities. They rally for social justice campaigns. But at the end of the day, it comes down to money. Funding is needed for schools and low-income communities. And funding is needed for the mental health support in schools. If we want to stop cycles that continue the discrimination and disparity we see in our justice system, we see in our education system, we have to hold politicians accountable for seeing that the funding go where it is desperately needed instead of accepting every campaign's empty promises. This leads us to the end of this week's episode on why trauma runs the world. I hope you have learned something about the dysfunction in our education system and how important trauma-informed education is. I urge everyone listening to tell a friend or a family member about the issue and see that more people understand why so many students are falling behind so that we can create change in our policies and create a better future and opportunity for more children. If you'd like to learn more, you can go to thedropoutprevention.org and or Attachment Trauma Network, both of which were some of the sources that brought you to today's episode. Thank you for listening and make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode.